When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to this special general election edition of the How To Academy podcast. A couple of months back, just before the election was called, the former Conservative minister turned independent politician Rory Stewart joined us live on stage for an in-depth conversation with Hannah McInnes, exploring how government works and how it doesn't. His frankness about the realities of working in Westminster made for an insightful and sobering listen. Now, just a few days before we head to the ballot box, we're sharing it with you. Hello everyone, good evening. Thank you very much for coming. I'm delighted to see so many of you here, so many of you making, I think, the wisest possible choice on what to do with your Wednesday evening. Well done for getting your hands on such a coveted ticket and for getting past the tribes of protesters or whatever madness you might have encountered on the Westminster streets uh, this evening. I want to keep all that chaos out there or over in a certain building a few streets away and for you to think of the Emmanuel Centre as a sort of bastion of peace and calm and uh, serenity for the next hour or so. Um, I hope we're going to dissect a bit of the madness and I can't think of anyone better to do that with, of course, than Rory. Uh, Someone who's been right at the swirling centre of it all for the past few years, as a front bench and a back bench MP, as a prominent candidate in a rather dramatic leadership race, as I'm sure many of you know, earlier this year, um, and now as an aspiring London mayor um, and as an independent. But um, though he is very much the man of the moment, this evening is not just about this moment or about Rory uh, in his political guise. He's in fact a very hard person to introduce, not just because um, there is an uncanny amount to fit in, but also I think the last time he was in front of a big live audience, he chose that moment to announce a pretty uh, decisive career move. So if you have anything you want to tell us this evening, it's always subject to change. Um, Do you have anything you want to say? (laughs) Not not on that scale. Okay, good. Um, Before he became a politician, he had an equally varied and lively career. He was a diplomat um, serving in Jakarta and Montenegro and Iraq. He ran an NGO in Kabul, lectured at Harvard, and also um, a small matter of walking 6,000 miles uh, over the course of two years across Asia. Um, And they're all experiences that he's written about in his brilliant books, which you can by this evening, and experiences that caught the eye of a certain Brad Pitt, who has bought the film rights to his life, if I understand rightly. (laughs) But I I need to stop talking because um, I I slightly fear that he's just made it here, and I'm sort of worried that you might get whisked away to vote on another amendment, so I'm going to get on. Um, You've just, uh, have literally just arrived. What have we been doing this evening? This this is the first vote on the Queen's speech, which is quite important because the Queen's speech lays out all the government's programmes. Normally it's laying out the government's programmes for years to come, but given that an election might be just around the corner, it's it's, it's, uh, perhaps less clear what exactly is happening. But what happened in this case, rather unusually for the government, is that they they won a vote for one of the... uh, (laughs) Second time, though, um, this week. I I said we're not going to talk just about the moment, but we are in, obviously, an extraordinary moment. And it it feels that it's quite an emotional moment. There have been reports this week of MPs sort of breaking down in tears um, in the lobby. How are you feeling at at the end of it? And do you have any sense of optimism? (laughs) Well, um, well, it, it is a very strange moment because... Of course, in a way that is sort of hidden under the surface of party politics, we are accustomed to, and maybe this is just us as humans, we're quite sort of tribal social animals. So the people that, although I'm now an independent MP, uh, my conservative colleagues are people that I've spent 10 years 
working with, campaigning alongside, sometimes sitting around cabinet tables with, and certainly trooping in and out of a voting lobby with, sometimes three, four times in a day. And one of the things that I, I found uh, interesting yesterday, so, so yesterday I, I'm afraid I, I agreed uh, with people who said that there hadn't been enough time to scrutinize the legislation. So the legislation really was very, very large. And uh, normally, uh, if you look at Maastricht, I think they, they went on for months. And the idea that we could, in two and a half days, take through this huge constitutional change uh, seemed to me to be something that wasn't really defensible. And, and, and more than that, seemed to be something that actually wouldn't be good even for the hard Brexiteers. If they took through their Brexit in a hurry, rammed through the House of Commons without proper scrutiny, it would be a bad foundation from which to base their project. So I voted against my party and against the government. It was a very interesting experience because essentially the pressure that was being put on me, and I had probably 35 different colleagues deputed to try to speak to me, including Theresa May being sent to try to convince me to change my mind. Or maybe she wasn't sent, maybe she spontaneously decided to come over to our city church in mind. Maybe that's a more gracious way of putting it. Um, but I got a nice text from her saying, please, please don't, don't vote against the government. And, and what you really feel is however much I'm confident on my arguments, and I kept patiently explaining why I thought two and a half days wasn't a serious amount of time to scrutinize, you get that sense of the personal loyalty and the sense of guilt and weight. So I wasn't quite weeping in the lobby. Um, but it, it is difficult, and back in Parliament today, of course, when you meet people's eye, you can see them looking at you in a slightly confused way. You know, did he let us down? And of course, that was a very big, big vote. I mean, this was the Prime Minister's biggest vote. This was his promise to deliver by the 31st of October. So, um, I know, I, I, I can understand why colleagues feel under huge emotional stress. If you add to that the fact that at the same time, as you imagine, you are getting quite literally hundreds of emails and thousands of tweets putting pressure on you to vote in one direction or another. And regardless of how you vote, you can absolutely guarantee that there will be a hundred people on Twitter who you will call you a coward immediately. It doesn't, doesn't matter whether you vote one way or the other. You can see why MPs begin to feel a bit, bit, bit uh, exhausted by the whole thing. Yep. So you, you obviously voted against them for the programme motion, but you voted, essentially you voted for his deal. Do you think it's a good deal? Well, this is, um, I mean, uh, no. I mean, not, not if the, not if the, um, um, I mean, it, the, I, I, obviously I, I voted Remain. I believed very strongly that we were, we were well off in Europe. I felt that this city had benefited enormously from Europe. I also felt that uh, security in Europe was helped by Britain being part of it. I think the European Union made a lot of sense. I was the environment minister at the time of the campaign, and I felt in so many ways the ways in which the environment is actually not just a national issue, but a, a much broader issue. At the same time, unlike anyone in this room, and this is, the, I think, one of the things that isn't talked about as much, unlike anyone in this room, I, I personally promised repeatedly that whatever the result of that referendum was, I would respect it. And one of the things underneath the surface of what's going on in Parliament is that every single member of Parliament was asked all the way through that campaign again and again, because journalists on radio and television, it was a very obvious question. You know, if people vote to leave, will you respect the result? And we all again and again in public promised to respect that result. So. What I've been trying to do is to work out how that result could be respected in the least damaging, most moderate, most pragmatic way. So I pushed very hard for a customs union. I worked with Ken Clark to whip for that. I failed in that. I tried to advocate for Theresa May's deal. I failed in that. Um, and I've been working to try to see what we can do to try to amend the current deal because I feel that the alternatives are going to be very, very divisive. And it's that divisiveness, almost more than the referendum, that I'm, I'm so worried about, that there has to be a way of trying to compromise. And I think compromise feels like a very, very difficult word at the moment. In fact, it's almost a banned word. People see compromise as a weak thing, when I think it could be quite a strong thing. 
I've heard you speak a lot about the fact that we are in a very straight, we're in strange times, everybody says it. I mean, do you think we're witnessing a sort of irrevocable breakdown of our institution? You've spoken about people taking a chisel to the constitution. Are you really worried? Yes, I, I am very worried. I, I am very worried because, uh, curiously, Mrs. Thatcher made a very powerful speech in the early 1970s against holding a referendum uh, on Europe. And it, it's very revealing. What she says is... I don't believe in referendum because what would happen if the referendum wanted to do something that Parliament didn't want to do? That was Mrs. Thatcher's question right, at the time. A referendum is, of course, a decision to go with direct democracy. And it's a decision to give the public as a whole the ability to make a binary choice, a binary choice in this case about leaving the European Union. All the other institutions in our country are related to an indirect democracy. I mean, Parliament itself, of course, um, operates in its votes indirectly. The government is even more indirect. Remember, we're not like the United States with a directly elected president. The, the government itself is only formed out of these funny members of Parliament. So even the Prime Minister and the Cabinet are just a, a bunch of people generated out of the members of Parliament. Once that direct democracy has voted, the danger is that in the rush to implement the will of the people, almost all these other bits of our constitution get driven out of the way. So parliament gets railroaded and potentially the Supreme Courts get challenged. The monarchy gets dragged into it and so on and so forth. And you begin seeing things in, in British parliamentary life which have never been seen. I was just reading a speech by Walpole who was our prime minister in the 1700s. Uh, saying to the House of Commons, it has never yet been heard that a single member of parliament uh, has been thrown out of their seat or their party for voting against the government. Right? So, I mean, the principle there was that uh, we had a separation of powers between, theoretically, at least so Montesquieu believed, between the government and the legislature, between the executive and the legislature. And the theory then would have been that, of course, you couldn't purge members of parliament for voting against the government. Otherwise, what would be the point of parliament, right? I mean, you might as well get rid of parliament. Just let the prime minister run the whole thing if members of parliament can't vote against the prime minister. But, of course, what is giving the ability for this to happen uh, is that direct democratic referendum, which has issued an instruction that the whole of the rest of the constitution is struggling to come to terms with. And one of the strongest reasons I was trying to make yesterday for why Parliament needed to be given the time to scrutinize the legislation was that we have to treat our constitution quite carefully. It's getting quite delicate now. I mean, in the end, this Parliament that we are increasingly fed up with and treating with contempt, I had a lot of colleagues in Parliament yesterday saying to me, ah, come off it, Rory, honestly. What's the point of having a few more days to discuss it in Parliament? Nobody reads the stuff anybody way. We've heard all their speeches anyway, cares about the amendments. And of course, they do have a point, right? I mean, you know, it, it, it is um, Robert Louis Stevenson said, we all know what Parliament is and we're all ashamed of it, right? That's in the, the, the late 1800s. I mean, it's true, a lot of these critics, but you can't act as though that's true. If you start really just assuming that the whole thing is a total waste of time and there's no point in parliamentary scrutiny or parliamentary debate or parliamentary amendments, then you have lost actually the whole soul of our democracy. I mean, that, that is, I mean, as the Supreme Court says, in the end, our democracy just comes down to parliament. That's what it is. Uh, so if you are, and this is my final point, that if you are a Brexit voter in the audience who voted to take back sovereignty, you wanted to take power from a European parliament to a British parliament, from a European court to a British court, then you must treat that British parliament and a British court with respect. That's the whole point of this whole uh, bid for sovereignty. And that's, that's, that was one of the strongest reasons why I voted against the government. What or who do you essentially blame for this sort of eroding of respect and... Is it, I mean, you've spoken a lot about Boris as being Trumpian. Do you think it's him? And how do you combat this sort of language, three-word slogans that don't really mean anything and in the end turn out to be lies? 
Well, there's sort of two, two separate questions and two very good questions. So, so one of them about, you know, how do we get into the situation? The other are these three-word slogans. Firstly, on how do we get in the situation? I think we basically gave up taking our constitution seriously some time ago. I mean, in a sense, because we're able to change our constitution through simple majorities in parliament, we never really had a constitution in the same way that every other country in the world has a constitution. I mean, I understand that in every other country in the world, constitutional law is different from normal law in the sense that if you want to change constitutional law, you can't just have a simple majority in parliament. You've got to have a referendum or two-thirds majority in parliament or, you know, some procedure, right? You can't change the US constitution just by Congress suddenly deciding in a simple vote in the lobbies that it's going to change the constitution. But in 2011, David Cameron tried to abolish the House of Lords, you know, change it from a, uh, an appointed chamber to an elected chamber, on the basis simply of driving through people through division lobby and trying to get a simple majority in the House of Commons. On these referenda, we changed the rules all the time. In the 1970s, it had to be a supermajority. It had to be the majority of people uh, of, of the electorate. Now, we're doing it on a simple majority basis, and there's no real decision. I mean, it was clearly daft, in fact. Obviously, this referendum should have been done on a supermajority. Trying to do it on a 50 plus one basis is ridiculous. But because we have no constitution, we don't treat our constitution properly. And this just goes on and on and on and on. You know, we, everything we're doing at the, at the moment is of this nature. And, you know, unless we begin reinvesting in the idea of a constitution. I don't, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be a written constitution, but we have to hold it in our souls. What we're actually engaged in is an act of immense hypocrisy. So, you know, the man you were quoting, Jacob Rees-Mogg, and, and uh, the speaker, John Burko, if you went back to their uh, exchanges when Jacob was a, a languid, lounging backbencher, uh, <laughs> six, seven years ago, they spent their whole time endlessly talking about the Constitution. They kept making grand speech about country, and they kept complimenting each other on their understanding of parliamentary procedure and Erskine May, and you can imagine, right, the conversation between John Burko and Jacob Rees-Mogg, right? <laughs> but since then, they have completely broken up, right? There's been this, this, this glorious marriage has completely broken up, with both of them accusing the other of trying to flout the Constitution. Right? And of course, they both have a point. Both of them are doing very, very odd things in relation to the way in which, you know, Jacob supported the proroguing of parliament, Jacob supported the idea there'd be only two and a half days debate on the largest constitutional decision of the last century, really. Um, uh, and the speaker, of course, introduced these funny SO24 motions and tried to change it. So I, we're all to blame. But so is David Cameron, so is George Osborne. I mean, when I tried to... Uh, I'm a sort of constitutional fundamentalist, so I refused to participate in the idea of abolishing the House of Lords on the basis of a simple vote in Parliament. Also because actually it, there was something even worse about it. They were doing it because they were trying to cut a deal with their coalition partners, who were then the Lib Dems, to agree to reduce the number of members of Parliament, which they thought were going to help them in an election. If they could get from 650 down to 600, they were more likely to win the 2015 election. I mean, the whole thing was very, very odd, right? So. I refused to, to, to vote with the government on that occasion and was told on the door of the lobby by George Osborne that unless I walked into the lobby, I wasn't going to be promoted for the next four years. So the whole thing, I mean, the whole thing is very weird. I mean, it's treated in an odd way. Now, let's jump to the three-word slogan. The three-word slogan, of course, of which we are talking is uh, the slogan, take back control. And this, of course, is a slogan brought up by Dominic Cummings, who is the great, great master of the three-word slogan. And uh, if any of you have seen that documentary, this is beautifully dramatized by him endlessly staring at a whiteboard trying to get his three-word slogan. It's powerful because he's saying a lot of things at once. He's making a comment about people's anxieties about the funding for the NHS. He's making a comment about immigration. He's making a comment about sovereignty. And he's found three words. Uh, that can bring it all together. He, he did the same in the leadership campaign. I, I, um, I, <laughs> I, had, um, I had a Chinese meal with him uh, in, I did dim sum with him in uh, Leicester Square. Uh, and he said to me, Rory, 
you're to win this election, you need to say that if you become prime minister, you're going to say you're going to do three things. Right? You're going to deliver Brexit, beat Jeremy Corbyn, and reunify the country. And I thought well, that's brilliant. These three words, right? <laughs> and then, sure enough, the next day I saw Sajid Javid saying, "We only have to do three things." Right? <laughs> And then Boris Johnson, and then the rest of them. Uh, so, so he's he's an extraordinary kind of advertising copywriter. I mean, he's a. That is a brilliant story. Um, you, you've you've spoken about purging. That didn't used to happen. You obviously were purged. Can you tell us that story? It's it happened by a text message. Yeah. So I just I had um I just been made GQ Politician of the Year right now. I don't, I don't, but I didn't really know what this meant, right? So I had turned up, uh, and <laughs> I just got off. I don't know, just got off the train from Cumbria. So I was in my sort of, I said, kind of weird. I can't remember quite work, worker. Oh, yeah, that's right. I was in a pair of tartan trousers, and I was dragging a wheelie bag that I that I brought, and I just got out of a vote in the House of Commons. Was put outside uh, my Uber at this um, at uh, at Tate Modern, and saw stretching ahead of me this incredible red carpet with photographers on every side. So here I am, my tartan trousers, <laughs> dragging my wheelie bag like a flight attendant, right the way down the red carpet, with all these things going off, right? and arrived in this extraordinary room. Uh, and I began to realise I was slightly out of my depth because. You know, there was Nicole Kidman, there was Kylie Minogue, there was Stormzy, and there was me with my wheelie bag. Right? Um, now, eventually, I I followed. I think um, uh, Phoebe, who does Fleabag, who had just been given an award, onto onto the stage uh, to get my award, and I noticed that there was a buzzing in my pocket, a text. So I put my phone down. I usually see. I put my phone down. I said, "Think," and it was a, a text from the chief whip. Right. Uh, so I was standing up to make my speech to accept the position of politician of the year. At the point at which I got a text telling me that I wasn't allowed to be a politician anymore. <laughs> uh, um, oh, and also, oh. of course, sorry. The last thing, of course, that I realised is that. Not a single person. It was like a thousand people had any idea who I was. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so I said we wouldn't we wouldn't only talk about now, and I want to talk about someone who you write about a lot, who you've obviously um, you know think and guides a lot of what you do, and your, it's your father, your late father, Brian. Um, although you said you said he is someone who thought that an MP was somewhere between a disappointment and an outrage. Do you, do you think what he would have made of all of this? Yeah, so my father's big thing to me was, as soon as I became uh, an MP, he said, "Don't don't go to Westminster. Just stay in your constituency. <laughs> Be a sort of district officer. Run it. Get the broadband in. Get the roads sort of that." Right? Um, and I had to explain to him, sort of painfully, that, that very sadly, that is not the power of a constituency MP. That's the power of the local council. And in fact, actually, it was the most frustrating thing about being an MP. I loved my constituency, and everything that everybody wanted to talk to me about in my constituency was local. They wanted to talk about broadband, they wanted to talk about housing, they wanted to talk about policing, and all I could ever do was write a letter to the local council to try to get it sorted out, and then turn up in Westminster and make these speeches, uh, which, of course, nobody listened to except my mother. Um, uh, my father, uh, I think, pretended to listen to them, but he was really deaf, so he would have just seen me standing up and sort of generally sounding off. Um, and he had been in—he'd been um, in the army during the war, been a D-Day veteran, but then he had joined the Malayan Civil Service. So he'd been when when Malaya was a colony, British colony, from 1945 to 1957. He was the district officer in Penang and Malacca, running things, building schools, getting things done. And then uh, in 1957, uh, Malaya got independence, and he became a civil servant. He became a very odd kind of civil servant. He became a spy, became an intelligence officer. 
But he found even being a sort of mini James Bond an incredibly frustrating bureaucratic experience. He thought that he saw himself from then onwards as a civil servant, and he thought civil servants did nothing except sit in committees and write minutes, and it was generally a sort of talking shop. And his whole life was about trying to get back to that stage where he was actually able to do something. And I saw a little glimpse of this because I was lucky enough. Uh, in Iraq and again in Afghanistan, to be able to actually run things. You know, in Iraq, I was the acting governor of a province. In Afghanistan, I was running a charity that was rebuilding the center of the old city of Kabul, and I was responsible for the sort of Covent Garden of Kabul. I was clearing garbage, putting in water supply, putting in electricity, getting a clinic in, getting a primary school in, restoring 160 buildings, running a labor force. A deeply, deeply fulfilling, satisfying thing to do. And the problem with being an MP is that it's that you sort of have a fake accountability and a responsibility, but you can't actually do anything. You don't have a budget. You don't have any legal powers. You can't can't make anybody's life better. All you can do is try to troop in and out of a division lobby, uh, passing laws. And I think that's a very, very honourable, worthy thing to do. I think it's important in our democracy that people do that. But it is also a deeply, deeply frustrating, strange thing to be doing with your life. Let's talk a little bit about Iraq, because you felt those frustrations there, didn't you, as well? The sort of slight lack of control and a little bit out of your depth that comes across in Occupational Hazards, the book. But there is a moment where you call your father for his advice, and he tells you something you're not quite sure you can do. Yeah, so this was, I mean, so <laughs> generally what I did in Iraq... Um, I, I really enjoyed. So I set up a police force. I oversaw the restoration of a number of schools and clinics and the hospital, and got an employment program going and all this kind of thing. But things began to go, to put it mildly, a little bit wrong in Iraq, as some of you might have noticed. So I eventually ended up with um, a large crowd outside my building of thousands of people chucking Molotov cocktails and um, trying to storm our compound. And between me and the uh, crowd, which was growing all the time, was a very small company of British soldiers uh, with a couple of armoured vehicles who were trying to hold the crowd back. And I was standing there trying to work out what we were supposed to do, at which point I got a telephone call from my father. And at this point, there are bullets going off and things, so it's quite noisy, so I'm trying to have a conversation with him, but it's quite noisy. Uh, and I've got a, one of these very, very stiff uh, vests on, you know, bulletproof vests on, and I've got a sort of funny little helmet, and I've got a telephone up by my ear, kind of stick under my helmet. And my father says, what's going on? And I say, well, um, unfortunately, uh, we slightly lost control of the city, and this crowd is trying to storm our compound. And he said, very, very straightforward, darling. Uh, all you have to do is shoot the ringleader and declare a 24-hour curfew. <laughs> yeah. You didn't. No, I didn't. I mean, I went to see the um, I went to see the, the the colonel of the light infantry, who was I was the civilian bit, he was the military bit, and I said to him, for what it's worth, you know, my father says what we should be doing is, uh, <laughs> but but neither he nor I. Uh, we certainly weren't going to shoot the ringleader, and we weren't really sure how we were going to impose a 24-hour curfew either. No. The, the book is called um, Occupational Hazards here, but I think, think it's in the States that it's the Prince of the Marshes. And that's the character, this extraordinary character. Tell us a little bit about the, who, the Prince of the Marshes and your interactions with him, perhaps with a good impression, because I've been listening to the audio book and quite <laughs> enjoying your... <laughs> no, so the Prince of the Marshes was an extraordinary figure. He was a tribal figure who had been a sort of Robin Hood. He had taken to the marshes fighting against Saddam Hussein from the early 1990s onwards. And he was most famous for an incident where he'd become a great wanted man and there was a huge price on his head. But he had come into the main kebab shop, basically, in the center of El Amara, and was having a kebab when half a dozen of Saddam's intelligence people walked into the kebab shop uh, and tried to arrest him. And he famously uh, took out a hand grenade and put it on the table in front of him and stuck his finger under the, um, 
thing, and they backed off, right, allowing him to escape. Now, by the time I turned up, he had variously charmed various of my predecessors and had stolen, as far as I could see, about 1,200 cars from ministry buildings and was cutting down all the copper wire off all the uh, electric pylons and had set up his own police force and had got his brother in as the governor of the province and was very much of the view that he and I together should be running the province together. And I, uh, you know, had, um, you know, my normal sort of slightly anxious and unrealistic ideas about constitutions, democracy, human <laughs> rights, and so on, um, uh, which made him very, very angry. Uh, and eventually the whole thing sort of completely blew up. I ended up with, um, uh, you know, tribal militias on one side, uh, Iranian-backed militias on another, indigenous, satirist, Shia militias on another, um, the compound under siege, heavy machine guns on the roof, and the whole thing. But at the center of all this was this man, the Prince of Marshes, that would flip in an instant from inviting me to go out in a helicopter with him and shoot pig in the marshes uh, from, from the helicopter to shouting at me and telling me that I was worse than Saddam Hussein and I was destroying, destroying the province. Um, and eventually he accused us of um, mutilating corpses. He, he actually started an entire legal case against British soldiers in Alamar, accusing them of chopping the ears off corpses. That was eventually taken, taken up in the, in the British courts and caused a huge fiasco, which was, um, you know, eventually proved to be a, a complete sort of figment of his own imagination. I mean, there was, um, so, it's Prince of the Marshes, but I, I don't, I mean, he's still around. I mean, I, when I was in Iraq, I, I saw his brother recently. I, the, let me finish on this, though. I mean, the, my relationship with these people was very complicated. So, in Nasiriya, uh, I had lunch with another character of this sort from another tribe called Asad al-Ghazi, and... Assad was a very, very um, charming man, gave me a good lunch, a lot of fish, a lot of lamb. And two days later, suddenly the, there were these rocket-propelled grenades and mortars raining into my compound. And Assad calls me and he says, we're attacking you, you need to leave the compound or we're going to kill you all, right? So again, you know, I get pompous and I say, I'm, you know, I'm running this province, we're not going anywhere, what do you mean, etc." So we then settled down for a three-day siege and my bodyguards are on the roof of the heavy machine guns. We have 140 rocket-propelled grenades and mortars. Our entire computer system's blown up. People are being wounded, the whole thing. Eventually, uh, I call in a thing called an AC-130 Spectre gunship that turns up and starts uh, killing all Assad's guys around the compound. And the siege ends. And... Uh, about two weeks later, I see Assad, and he comes up to me, and he hugs me, and he kisses me on both cheeks. And I say, Assad, what are you doing, right? I mean, you were trying to kill me. And he said, oh, Rory, that, 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 that was nothing personal. <laughs> and I sort of get what he was talking about, but I was still pretty cross. <laughs> Um, I said at the beginning, very varied. There's, there's so many things um, we could talk about, but I do want to talk about the walk because I think, um, having heard you speak about it before, perhaps this, this, the, the Asia walk, because you've done many, um, do you feel like that changed you more than almost anything else before then and since? Why did you decide to, to do that? Yes, I mean, the, the walk completely changed me. So I set off... Um, I suppose, aged, I'm trying to work out how old I was. Anyway, tw 27, 28, something like that. And I then spent 21 months walking almost entirely alone, 25, 30 miles a day, or actually usually 20, 25 miles a day, across, uh, from the Turkish border across Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Nepal, and I stayed in something like 550 different village houses along that, that route. And, of course, 
most of the time, I wasn't talking to anyone. I was alone uh, during the day, just walking and walking and walking. And in the evening, I was sitting in people's houses and trying to speak in Farsi, Dari, Urdu, Nepali, but not awfully well. I can, I mean, really not awfully well. So these conversations um, were a little bit limited. And it did, it, it completely changed me. I mean, it completely changed me in one smaller sense. It, it changed me because, obviously, if you spend uh, nearly two years of your life alone just walking every day, uh, you become, um, or, well, you become temporarily a slightly different person. My friend Will's observation on this is he says that I, I came back to London and for about two weeks I was like some sort of mini Buddha. And then at the end of two and a half weeks, I'd completely reverted to the normal <laughs> gibbering person I'd been before I set off on the walk. So it, I, I gained about two and a half weeks of enlightenment out of 21 <laughs> months of walking. Um, uh, but more seriously, what it, it gave me is a completely different insight into government because I'd been a diplomat and I walked across Afghanistan and of course I'm staying in these villages where um, people have not been more than two hours walk from their village in their life. I'm seeing these incredible warlords, I'm being shot at, I'm seeing drugs being produced, I'm, I, and I arrive in Kabul and I get to a meeting and everybody says, back in the embassy environment, I'm at a meeting with the president of Afghanistan and for some reason at that stage, uh, Bianca Jagger, who was the UN representative, and, um, and they all say there is a consensus in Afghan society, everybody is committed to a gender-sensitive, multi-ethnic, centralized state based on democracy, human rights, and the rule of law, right? And I realized that I can't translate that into language that any Afghan villager that I've met would be able to understand. And that was a very important revelation for me. And really, since then, when that was 2002, Really, everything since in my life has been driven by the belief that the jargon of government, the way that governments talk about people, and that's as true in Britain and in London as it is in Afghanistan, has very, very, very little relationship to what happens on the ground. So that's what the walk did. It showed me that gap, and everything I've done since is about trying to understand and explore that gap between rhetoric and reality. Walking and talking and listening is obviously still, as you say, hugely important. It's been a massive part of, it was part of the campaign for the leadership, it's part of your um, mayoral campaign now. I mean, you said um, losing the ability to listen and the skills to change the world is what being an M MP has felt like. Is that right? And is that the main driver behind your reason to become an independent and stand for mayor? I definitely feel that um, unless you're a very special person, being an MP is, is incredibly bad for you. I mean, it's, it's, it's bad for your mind, it's bad for your body, it's bad for your soul. Middle-aged men in general uh, are not very good at listening to people. MPs are generally really, really bad at listening to people. There are some exceptions. I mean, there are some wonderful MPs, right, who somehow have the strength of character to come through that. Uh, generally, I think women MPs are better than men MPs in that regard, but maybe that's, maybe that's, that's um, a, a huge generalization, because I can think of some women MPs who aren't awfully good at listening to anyone either. So, um, uh, but it's not good for you, because there is a, a general hypocrisy in the whole enterprise. You're asking questions in Parliament which are not really inquiries. You're having debates which are not really exchanges of views. You are voting, but these aren't really voluntary choices. You are legislating, but you're not really, most of the time, if you're following your party, actually anything really to do with the details of legislation. And you are pontificating about things you know nothing, nothing, nothing about, <laughs> right? So when I was the Africa minister, to just try to illustrate when I realized the whole thing had gone mad, right? I had to stand up and do foreign office questions again and again at the dispatch box. And the MPs would say, will my right honorable friend, uh, will the right honorable member tell me 
you know, what he is going to do about the shocking situation in Togo. Right? I stand up and answer, right? What is my right honorable friend going to do to stop the civil war in Cameroon? Right? No. What is my right honorable friend going to do to make sure that the atrocities cease in Burundi? Right? And, and of course, what happens is I stand up and I say, I call on both sides in Burundi to uh, uphold the Arusha Accords and work with the ex-Tanzanian Prime Minister, and I think the House should agree with me that ultimately the only end to the civil war will come from a political solution. And everyone's like, here, here. But at no point, right, at no point do I say to them, wait a sec, we don't have an embassy in Burundi. Right? I had an embassy in Togo in our lives. What are you talking about? What do you mean, what am I going to do about Burundi or Togo? I don't even do anything. Right? <laughs> um, so, Can I, I just I, ask, I, how yeah. long have you felt like this? Have you ever believed it? <laughs> have you ever believed in it? Well, I sort of, I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. I mean, it is the maddest most peculiar way of running anything. Um, and yet somehow, miraculously, this parliament has been the guarantee of our liberties uh, for about 700 years. So there's something about this odd thing that sort of works. But that's the mystery of the British Constitution. It's very difficult to explain to anyone how this thing, parliament, or, or maybe even how a hereditary constitutional monarchy works. I mean, it sort of works, but it works in, a, in an odd decorative sense. I mean, it's not really doing what it's pretending to do all the time. I mean, it's... You know, I was um, very lucky to have jobs in government which were generally things I knew a little bit about. You know, I was Secretary of State for International Development. I sat on the National Security Council. So I sat in discussions on countries like Iran, and at least I speak Farsi. I've spent quite a lot of my life writing about Iran, thinking about Iran, working about Iran. But it's complete coincidence, right? The, 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 you're appointed to these jobs like a monkey throwing darts at a dartboard. I mean, I remember when I first got my first job, I, uh, I was the environment minister, and I went up to to David Cameron, you know, to thank him, thinking, you know, he'd been reflecting hard on my interest in water quality and forestry and this, that, and the other. And he, um, he slapped me on the back and he said, so then, how are you enjoying farming? <laughs> right, and I realized, of course, the man had no idea really what I was doing <laughs> at all. When I, um, my, my passing of the ways with, with our dear prime minister, I think began at the moment at which I was appointed a foreign office minister. I was the first foreign office minister appointed um, by Theresa May under the foreign secretary. Uh, and I went in to see him and I said, look, you know, you will have views on which, um, which portfolio you want me to do. Uh, but the only thing I would say is, please, whatever you do, do not make me the African minister because I've spent, you know, nearly 20 years of my life working on the Middle East and Asia. I, I speak... Uh, some European languages, some Middle Eastern languages, some Asian languages. I've um, been a DFID minister on the Middle East and Asia. I've written three books about the Middle East and Asia. Uh, but I know absolutely nothing about Africa. Uh, to which Boris Johnson said, Oh, come on, Rory. What's the capital of Uganda? <laughs> So I left the room really kind of shaken by this. And I, 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 um, I began ringing number 10, begging, pleading. You know, can somebody please, please bring some sense to this? I mean, what on earth is the point? I've spent 20 years of my life studying these countries. Why are you putting me in Africa? But of course, I, I lost. And of course, from the point of view of the House of Commons, uh, because these things are so rough and ready, they all thought it was the most brilliant appointment. For the next sort of two weeks, all my 
friends would come up to me in the lobby, pat me on the back and say, at long last, a minister in a portfolio he really understands. <laughs> a round peg in a round hole. And I'd be like, oh, no. thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, but you wanted to be the prime minister. Right. Do you, still, do you still want that? No. Really not? That's, no. that's absolutely not where you want to end up no. after... No, if I wanted to be Prime Minister, I would be trying to stay in the House of Commons. It, it is not sensible, if you are trying to be Prime Minister, to leave the House of Commons. Uh, the, um, because the Prime Minister comes out of the House of Commons. You don't uh, think you'll go back? You, you don't think you'll go it's back? It's not easy to go back either. I mean, it, it is true Boris went back, as somebody's pointed out. But, uh, no, really what is driving me is I want to do things which are operational and local. I do not want to stand at a dispatch box pontificating about Togo. I want to be able to turn up. I mean, I am very cheered up. I was in Brixton last week. I'm walking down the street. A man walks out of his shop. He's an Afghan. I can talk to him in Dari, but what he is talking to me about is the fact that his 17-year-old son has been selling cannabis and he has taken his son to the police station and the police have not responded in the way that he wants. If I were lucky enough to be mayor of London, I could help him. The mayor of London is the police and crime commissioner. The mayor of London is actually in charge of the Metropolitan Police. It's a totally different type of relationship and I think it's a much healthier type of democratic relationship. The kind of things that people want you to do, you know, I. I want, if I'm lucky enough to become mayor, I want to be able to say to people at the end of four years, so imagine that I was Sadiq Khan now, and I want to sit here on stage and say, okay, if you want to judge me as mayor of London, here are three questions for you. Do you feel safer than you did four years ago? Right? Is your housing more affordable than it was four years ago? Is your commute better than it was four years ago? And if the answer is yes, I want them to elect me again, and if the answer is no, I want them to boot me out. I want that kind of job, right? I want, I want to be able to help people in a way that, that, that is tangible and real, that doesn't involve spouting nonsense. Do you think you're going to have to brush up on your um, pubs? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know I really got, I really got I, to brush I, up my pubs. I'm, I, this was a great... This was a I great, don't know if anyone knows this story. No, this was, so this was a lovely moment. So I was, I was being... So I'm... Um, I'm being interviewed uh, by Channel 4, and they say to me, um, so then, Rory, what is your favorite boozer in London? Right? Uh, and the truth of the matter is, I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old son, right? so I don't actually spend any time in a pub. Right? So I said rather sort of wanly, well, I suppose I'm kind of more of a sort of pret-a-manger person. Right? <laughs> They didn't see it. This, 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 is, this is really not a very good answer to that question. If, <laughs> if any of you are thinking of running for elected office, I, I, I'd like to recommend <clears throat> not to do that. So yeah. I, I must um, come to the audience question. I'm sure you've got many, but just before I do, let me just ask, you've said you won't, you won't go back into the Commons, but a lot of people were hoping or, or hope that there might be some chance for a centre ground, that so we're in a sort of age of the extremes. Do you think that those hopes and people in sort of central, centrists... Where do they fit? Is there a place for them now? Yeah, well, there has to be. I mean, there is a huge, huge gaping hole in the centre of British politics. What's happening is that these parties are being captured by, uh, unfortunately, by their certain proportion of their members that are dragging them more, the Conservative Party more to the right, the Labour Party more to the left. I mean, it's, it, it's patently obvious. And their electoral strategies involve doubling down on that. So the Conservative Party is obviously rebranding itself as a sort of a party that's largely arranging itself around Brexit. And if it, if it goes into a campaign, it will go around Brexit and m maybe even potentially about threatening a no-deal Brexit. Uh, and the Labour Party, of course, you know, we can see with Jeremy Corbyn, that is a particular bit of the Labour Party that was quite a fringe of the Labour Party until quite recently. It's now seems to have the whip hand. So there is this gaping hole in the central British politics and it is, I believe, where people are. Now, that's not what the polls say. The polls say that I'm completely wrong. The polls say that public opinion used to be a sort of bell jar with all the votes in the middle, and now it's collapsed. It's a sort of U-shape with the votes on two extremes and, and me sitting in the middle all on my own, right? Nobody, nobody in the center. But I don't think that can possibly be true. 
particularly if we actually listen to each other, work with each other. And, and that's because politics, in a positive sense, isn't just about ideological positions on economics. It's about what it means to be, well, in a local sense, a community, what it means to work together with different people, what it means to, to be a nation, what it means to not just be about narrow interests, but about a collective endeavor. And a collective endeavor has to involve the center. But, and this is, this is my big insight on this, that center must not be a sort of gray, neutral fudge. It can't be a sort of, here's a line, and we're just going to choose the middle. We'll split the difference between left and right. right? No, the center has to be something more like a string attached to those two edges. Right? A string attached to one end and one extreme and the other, and pulling back on that like a bow. So the center point is the maximum point of force, that maximum point of force that draws the energy from the two extremes, takes you know, the compassion and love of social justice from the left, takes the sense of liberty and energy and patriotic pride from the right, and draws on both of those, harnesses them both, so that the arrow at this point draws on that energy rather than rejects it. It has to embrace it. It's about harnessing the energy of difference. It's about harmony, but harmony, of course, right, is not about one fudged note. Harmony is about how you juxtapose different notes, and that's what the center ground has to be. I'm sure you've got lots of questions. I'm sure there'll be far um, too many for me to fit in. But if you have a question, can you, yeah, can you put your hand up? And we've got some roving mics. Hi. Um, you've spoken about the hypoc hypocrisy, posturing, and ceremony in Parliament, which inevitably leads to a disconnect with the people that Parliament serves. Do you think there is a genuine understanding um, in Parliament of quite how little faith people have left? And what do you think can be done about it? I think, I mean, I think members of parliament, one of the reasons why I think people are under enormous strain is, of course, people are aware of that. People sense disappointment, they sense anger. In some cases, of course, MPs are subject to serious abuse and threats. And, of course, as individuals, members of parliament are often deeply, deeply hardworking, committed people. I mean, many people's views of their own constituency MPs is very positive their interaction at an... In fact, oddly, if you ask people, what do you think about Parliament? Terrible. If you ask them what they think about their own individual constituency MP who's seen the surgery, they often have a much more positive view. Um, I mean, I, I, I hate the whole tone of it. So I, I hate the um, Yabu sucks of Prime Minister's questions. I hate the sort of hear, hear, and the shouting and the applause. I hate the fact that people are making speeches when they don't often know very much about the subject they're talking about. I hate the fact that we all sit there looking at our mobile phones. I hate the fact the chamber's half empty half the time. I hate the fact that people vote on legislation they don't understand. I hate the way that we pretend that these are independent MPs expressing their own judgment, but actually uh, all of us who are members of political parties vote 99% of our time with our political parties. I mean, we stand on a political manifesto, we vote in that way. And it's not good enough. I mean, it, it's not good enough. It's not what you want. It's not what you deserve. And the system is wrong. I mean, we have to be more serious. We have to be more serious about sitting hours. I mean, it can't make sense to have a weird world in which you are sitting till 10 o'clock at night or sometimes two or three in the morning, what, why? It, it can't make sense to... But it's also, there's so many tensions which make it difficult to reform. So on the one hand, you want MPs, understandably, to be representative of ordinary people. On the other hand, you want MPs to be able to make very, very informed comments about highly specialist issues. So, you know, I was on the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, and of course, I think I was the only member of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee who had ever worked outside the United Kingdom. Right? Now, that's not a surprise, though, because, of course, 
you know, amongst my friends on the Foreign Affairs Select Committee was a guy who had been for 16 years a steel worker at the diesel aluminium plant uh, in Motherwell, had been a trade union organizer, had spent his entire life representing that community. I mean, he knew far more about that than I was ever going to know. Um, and you want him in Parliament, but you probably don't want him focusing on whether the Shia militia in Najaf are or are not going to be in the ascendant in relation to the Iranian-backed militias or... I mean, it's not his speciality, right? I mean, the guy... So, I, we, we have to work our way through these things. And the US system is to have, effectively in the Senate, only 100 people and to be pretty honest about the fact that they are there to deal with very, very big national, international issues. We can't quite decide whether we're a local council or a Senate. So a lot of the questions in Prime Minister's questions veer from, you know, will you condemn the Saudi bombing in Yemen to will you congratulate, you know, uh, the Penrith Football Club on their latest victory over you know, whoever, right? Um, so we're going to have to work through all this stuff if we're to have anything sensible. Given the events of the last three years in Parliament, has the mother of Parliaments become a, figure, a global figure of fun? Well, it's certainly true that, um, unfortunately, in many, many countries, people look at Parliament and think it's comical. Yeah. I mean, I used to... I mean, it's not unique to the British Parliament. When, when we were... Uh, all through the Arab world, if you're looking for a good time, you, you used to watch the Yemeni parliament. That was always a, that was a good, good way of uh, amusing yourself at, uh, late in the afternoon. But the British parliament has become like that. People are, are you know, glued to C-SPAN in the United States. And the rigmarole of the whole thing hasn't really helped. I mean, it's difficult in the Brexit negotiations. It's difficult in dealing with Europe for them really to get their head around the tone in which this whole thing is conducted. So, so yes, I agree. I think... It's a difficult thing. I think this parliament, which was a, you know, a real source of wonder to people in the 18th and 19th centuries, now seems to other countries uh, deeply anachronistic. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, quick question. So you've got four years. How will you make us feel safer in London? Okay, very good question. How you would can come how, back here yeah. in four years for us? Yeah, to... I'll come back in four years and, and see whether I've managed it. Um, well, my experience working most directly on this was when I was the prisons minister. And I discovered as the prisons minister that an enormous amount of what needed to happen to reduce violence in prisons, and obviously violence in prisons uh, is not exactly the same as violence in communities, but it has some things in common, right? It has in common the fact that a lot of the people committing the violence uh, are also themselves victims. Uh, in a prison scenario, uh, Violence had tripled in the five years before I took over, and those were, if you look at prisoners, 38% uh, of prisoners have been in care, about 42% have been excluded from school, compared to about 2% of the general population. Uh, about 50% have a reading age under 11. Uh, and that's before you get into addiction issues, mental health issues, etc. So the way to deal with it in a prison context is to realize that you mustn't ever get into the either-or feeling of politics, which basically, in crude terms, is a standoff between uh, a sort of liberal view, which is it's all about relationships and love, and a conservative view, which is it's all about being tough, right? Uh, the truth of the matter is that actually it's much more like the way that you'd have to think about uh, being a teacher in a difficult school. In other words, of course it's about love, of course it's about understanding, but of course it's also about really knowing what you're doing and having very clear expectations and very clear boundaries and a very clear sense of what's acceptable and isn't. So let's fast forward to Poplar. I was in Poplar where a guy had been stabbed and he bled to death under a police tent while I was standing there. What were the two things that you pick up about that? Firstly, of course, it's true. We have been terrible about youth clubs. We're terrible about youth workers. We're terrible about support. 
for these younger people, right? At the same time, there were no neighborhood police of any sort visible, and everybody in this state felt that very, very strongly. We could see a whole group of young men on bicycles who were carrying knives, and the general feeling in the community, quite rightly, is nobody was going to do anything about it. And that means that you have to get into the operational details of Metropolitan Police, I'm afraid. Right? Again, as a prisons minister, often people would say to me, your job is just to be a sort of um, non-executive chair. Don't get too operational. There is a chief executive of the prison service, there's governors, there's prison officers. It's not your job to get into what's happening on the ground. Nonsense, 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 right? The only way you can turn the institution around is by really getting into the question of why on earth have we gone from 320 officers in Southwark to 120, right? Now, that may be partly about funding cuts, the number of police, but why are people spending only a year as the neighborhood policemen when they used to spend eight years, right? So you've got to do that, and you've got to push it hard, and it's difficult, and institutions like the Metropolitan Police are very difficult. And you've got to balance showing real respect for uniformed officers in a very difficult situation, right? They are genuinely getting attacked, abused, they're getting killed. It's a very, very difficult job. They have to be part police officer, part social worker, part mental health worker, part teacher, and actually part online specialist. But also, there needs to be a very, very clear set of expectations about what they're supposed to do. And at the core of that has to be neighborhood policing, has to be, has to be relationships, has to be what I saw in Durham, which is a very deliberate decision by the Durham police to have people spending 10, 12 years focused on an estate so that you walk around that estate with those officers and people know them. It is amazing how much that diffuses violence. It's amazing how much that can prevent. So you've got to do those two things at the same time. Hi, Rory. Uh, I was interested in your views on humanitarian intervention, um, especially with the war on terror, which has sort of tarnished um, humanitarian intervention in Iraq and Afghanistan, which were quite preemptive. Would you say humanitarian intervention is dead as it is now? I mean, we haven't seen any intervention in Turkey recently, and it wasn't much of an intervention in Syria either. So would you say it's dead? Yeah. Okay. So I think that's true. I think the age of intervention has come to an end. I think what... I, my whole career, really, before I gained Parliament, was these interventions. I worked on Bosnia, Kosovo, Iraq, Afghanistan, and for nearly 20 years, that kind of thing, nation building, 150,000 soldiers on the ground at the heights in Iraq and Afghanistan, and another 150,000 international civilians. The US government spending $100 billion a year, $100 billion a year in Afghanistan and Iraq. Huge, you know, a massive enterprise of all these universities, anthropologists, foreign services, development agencies, trying to fix other people's states. I think that's ended. And I don't think it's coming back again in my lifetime. And I think that's because we learnt that, except in very, very rare and special situations, we didn't know what we were doing. We set ourselves up to do things that didn't make sense. I mean, this is the gap between rhetoric and reality played at its most dramatic level, right? It's the level at which you say that you're going to be able to, and this genuinely is what people were saying. People were saying, 2001, they were going to be able to turn Afghanistan into Dubai, right? I mean, actually, we've hardly managed to turn Afghanistan into Afghanistan, right? And, uh, Take Afghanistan, right? That, that has been the expenditure of $500 billion. Nearly half a million troops have cycled through. Untold numbers of Afghans and foreigners have lost their lives. And today, almost half the country today is under control of the Taliban. All these areas that we were fighting over in Helmand are now back under Taliban control. So, no, I think this is, is coming to an end. And I think it's very, very difficult to convince ourselves that we now have the skills, the will, the capacity, the credibility, the legitimacy to go in and pretend that we can fix the Lake Chad Basin, Northeast Nigeria, Somalia, South Sudan, the Central African Republic, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Yemen, Syria. 
and so on and so forth. Thank you. I know we could all talk about so many more things and hear from you um, all evening, but we, ha we have to call it okay. a day. Let me Thank say you one, last thing. one last thing. One, one last thing. One last thing. Okay, one last thing. Um, thing to, to go away with. Um, I think the key thing, if politics is to be reborn and to live, is that we must get out of the idea of the politician doing what I'm doing, right? This is very uncomfortable. I'm sitting here, I'm telling little anecdotes, uh, I'm pontificating about police. The truth of the matter is that all of you in this room know far more than I do, right? I don't know how many of you, you know, 500 of you, right? You know 500 times as much as I do and far more about each individual part of London you live in, and the person that asked me the question about policing almost certainly knows far more about policing than I do, and this is what has to happen, right? We have to somehow, if we're actually to become a grown-up country, if we're to grasp the opportunity of London in the 21st century, we've got to somehow use you, right? This model, some funny middle-aged white man sitting on a stage pontificating, it's no good, right? it can't work like that. So please, 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 maybe not in my generation, you know, maybe long after I'm dead, but the only way we're gonna do this is if we become more than the sum of our parts rather than less, and that means somehow finding ways in the most positive sense to put you in charge, to let you drive these communities, you drive these areas rather than me. Thank you very much and good night. Thank you very much, thank you. This week's podcast starred Rory Stewart and was presented by Hannah McInnes. It was edited by John Doughty. For more insights into British and global politics, head to howtoacademy.com where you'll find podcasts and filmed interviews with Labour's Jess Phillips, former US Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, Obama Administration insider Cass Sunstein and many more. We're back next week with the final podcast before Christmas and let me tell you, it's a cracker. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.